Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur. He is coming to you live from Trey Young's Upper West Side apartment because Trey Young now owns New York. It's Benny Horowitz. You see him last night bowing, <laughs> bowing to the crowd. Did you see the quote that he said? Oh, about he the said, shows? Yeah, people like to come to shows in New York, and I gave him a show, so I bowed at the end. I'm like, oh, Trey Young, I love you, I think. I think, yeah, but you, you know what I don't get about the Garden crowd? And we're going to get into all the playoff action in just a little bit. What I don't what get don't about you? the Garden. Tell me what you don't get about Knicks fans. Uh, I don't get well, a lot of it right now. Number one, number one, why would, in, in this era of superstars, why would you treat these superstars the way you do? Because in a couple of years, you're going to be vying for their services and they right. may not want to come to you because you spit on them. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean. I think if there's anything you can't take away from the Knicks crowd is that you know if you become a New York Knick, Oh, they'll love you. They're going to love you. They're going to be real faithful. But it's true. They're not exactly bringing in big-time free agents for a long time, and maybe that's a reason. But, uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's a whole other story. Trey Young, he's here. He's arrived. That's right. A lot of people have arrived this postseason, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But right now, Benny, let's uh, let's let's crank up the DeLorean, head back in time, because it is this day in music history. Remind me to tell you my my DeLorean. I got a couple DeLorean stories oh. for off the air. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but in this day, in 1976, the Sex Pistols, oh. which is usually not a band I talk about. Um, I don't often give them a lot of love for a number of reasons, but this is an important thing. In, the, mm. in this day in 1976, they play a show at Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester, and inspired by that gig, many in the audience form super famous bands propelling the British punk rock scene. I'd never heard about this show, but the cool thing about it is apparently the venue held about 40 people, hmm. but hundreds, hundreds later claim that they were there to see this show. But confirmed at this Sex Pistol show in the audience were none other than Stephen Patrick Morrissey mm-hmm. of Morrissey. Of course. Uh, Pete Shelley and Howard DeVoto from the Buzzcocks. Marky Smith, who formed The Fall, and also apparently members of Joy Division. So in this 40 people somehow miraculously in Manchester in 1976, they formed like some of the most important not only punk bands, but British rock, uh, even inspiring the movie 24 hour party people. Mm. And, uh, apparently Steve Diggle of the Buzzcocks is quoted as saying, if Jesus was born in Bethlehem, British punk rock was born in Manchester at that gig. Wow. So there's a, you know, it's not that potent of a story because right. I'd assume the show probably wasn't that good. <laughs> but as I noted in the beginning, I don't often give a lot of love to the Sex Pistols. They've always been kind of an afterthought to me. I'm not that into the music, and I always attach them much more with uh, with their fashion and bravado rather than music and substance. But a story like this makes me remember that you can't question their importance in the narrative music and the creation of punk rock. Uh, It's doubly funny because I've had a lot of people tell me they were at shows that I don't think they were at. (laughs) A lot of people have been like, Oh, like that show at like, uh, yeah, like a lit lounge in, uh, in Brooklyn or or this place in, in Manhattan. And I'm like, wait, 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 
I remember that show. There's about seven fucking people there. Four of them were in the other band. I knew the other two. One girl I sold a t-shirt to. I'm like, I don't think you and your crew were there. And I got an elephant memory. People, there's been a, a lot of shows where I, I've heard definitely more people tell me they've been there than attended the show. So I do believe the uh, the narrative there as well. At what level of success did that start happening for you? Oh, it happens early. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like, don't don't um, underestimate the amount of, yeah, I like their first record people <laughs> that are out there. There's a bunch. Oh, Benny. Well, that kind of ties in, you know, ish to my this day in music history. On this day in 1984, and we have to do this because this is the official podcast of New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen released Born in the USA, which went on to go have seven number one, uh, no, excuse me, seven top ten singles. That's tied with Michael Jackson's Thriller and Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814. So on this day, 1984, New Jersey, big, big chapter for us. On this day, Bruce Springsteen's ass graced the world. (laughs) And it's amazing. The most remarkable thing about the last four years, and really this has happened ever since the song came out, but specifically in the last four years, um, people don't seem to get the <laughs> yes. meaning behind Born in the USA. Wild misappropriation. It's amazing <laughs> to me that you know, like all it takes is just one listen through and you're like, oh, oh, this is this is anti-war, not yeah. make America great again. See, that's why I don't even bother with metaphor, you know? Yeah. Oh, just man. Just tell them. Just tell them, like a Sum 41 song, you know? Treat us all like we're six, or else we're going to run with it in the wrong direction, you know? I got to ask you this question. So I was traveling over over the Memorial Day weekend, and I was flying back on Monday, Memorial Day, and the airline pilot gets on the loudspeaker, you know, doing all the information, and is like, and is like don't forget today to uh, salute the... Uh, men and women of the armed forces that originally made our country great. And these old ladies in front of us start clapping like crazy. And they're like, yeah. (laughs) And I'm just like, is that on me that I took it that he was like this old military guy that was like, make America great again? Or can you say make America great and it not mean that you're MAGA? Uh, Right now, no. And I think your your homeboy's thing would have been good and innocuous and fine if he didn't put the original part in. yeah <laughs> you know like that's that's the giveaway right there is like from like because you're probably right there's a uh high chance that that's like an ex-air force person or navy person like yeah. up there flying the actual plane so that doesn't surprise me i think what yeah what's the telltale for a maga is the fact that this place just started after America's military conflict. Yeah. Which uh, is not the case. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well, there's no easy transition into this one, Benny. So we're going to get right into our first story. Not quite a, a headline today, but Benny, have you been following what has been happening in the world of popular music? I haven't. I was filled in this morning by you, but now I'm all over it. Well, I like to think of on this podcast that we are cultural anthropologists. You know, if stuff is happening in the zeitgeist of of, of the country, we're here to talk about it. And probably nobody has been bigger in music than 
Every millennial mom's favorite teenage pop star, Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, she just released last week her debut album, Sour, which already has a couple top 10 songs on it. We, we were talking about Bruce's top 10 songs before. Um, she is a pop star who brings elements of pump, pop punk into her music you know we, we're using that term loosely though um but people have seemed to be eating it up she uh the album is number one in america right now knocking off j cole's album which i mean that was a great album the off season um but pop punk is having a moment thanks to tiktok it's a really amazing millennials and gen z finally agreeing on something here <laughs> in the cultural landscape so benny what do you make of this movement happening right now in music because she is well, a movement. Yeah. I mean, well, again, like this is where demographics play a role. You yeah. know, this is apparently a cultural phenomenon that missed me. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I guess, uh, you know, that's not covered in my periodicals of note, <laughs> um, you know, and things like that. So this is less like where how in the world could I possibly be offended at the delivery of an 18 year old's music to teenagers when I'm fucking 25 years removed from it, don't have TikTok. You know what I mean? Like, but, but you're on TikTok. How, how presumptuous would it be for me to sit here and be like, you kids don't know how to deliver your music. You need to walk six miles in a blizzard to the record pressing plant and you need to hand them your dat tape. You needed to work for nine and a half months straight. <laughs> Every song you needed to play it live. Like the fuck out of here. It's a pop song. Who cares? And I'm sure she had like all this big production behind it before she released it. She's still like, you know, some sort of rich Disney star who probably knows a million people and has all these connections to do it. So it's just like, it's another avenue to deliver pop music. And this time, uh, it turns out that viral videos need soundtracks. And this is how this one went. But see, this is where you are framing the way I think about it, Denny. Yeah. Is because I just would have read an article and I would have been like, oh, okay, this is where it ends. But you happen to send me an article from the Brown Daily Herald, <laughs> which I guess is an Ivy League institution. I didn't even know that. And I'd like to share with you the last paragraph of this article. Is that okay? Please do. Says Olivia Rodrigo, however, has merit to her success. She already had a Disney fan base, and she is not without talent. She can be credited for a powerful voice in the smart business sense that allowed her to adeptly use TikTok and the formula to her advantage. But ultimately, my brother broke up with a girl once for using the word ultimately too much because <laughs> it basically means this is the final answer and nothing else matters, right? Yeah. It remains true that her immediate and unparalleled success in doing so has catalyzed the onset of a new era of the same old music, robbing the music industry of the sanctity of the creative process. TikTok is the indicator of success in music now, and while it can be credited for lowering the barriers of entry in the music industry by giving a musician a platform to grow, I mean, that sounds like a pretty good thing to me, right? <laughs> the issue remains that it prefers homogeneity and to originality, leaving many potentially talented artists disadvantaged. Like most systems that claim to be merit meritocratic, don't even know what it means, TikTok is anything but. It clings desperately to the familiar and in doing so, 
actively hinders the progression of art and scene. I mean, <laughs> get a fucking grip. Like, are you kidding me? I've been playing music like three fourths of my life. And, and I literally like, I make decisions that greatly impact my life to actually hold on to the sanctity of art and all those things. And this is not what's messing it up, guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this 18 year old woman putting a pop song on TikTok. Like, seriously, get the fuck <laughs> over it. This is ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous. And the thing that's actually ruining it. So he's at Brown, which is a school that is, you know, heavily invested in hedge funds that are providing the <laughs> right. money um, for some of these uh, venture capital groups to buy artist catalogs and their and, and, and their masters and not give it back. That's what's killing it. Not the fact that uh, Olivia Rodrigo got lucky with driver's license and now has a number one al album in America. So take some less music theory classes, you know, actually en enjoy the art because it's just entertainment. It's not so Listen, serious. You, you got to work within the constructs of what's given to you, yeah. you know, like, like, yes, James Harden's game wouldn't have worked in 1977. <laughs> But he figured out the rules, you know, and now it does. Come on, people. All right, Benny, to the hardwood we go. And Benny, the NBA playoffs are getting very exciting. On Wednesday night, we saw Luka Doncic, 42 mm -hmm. points, become he is the fifth most points through 11 games in his playoff career uh, behind some Hall of Famers, legends of, of the game. Absolutely unbelievable. So we saw Luka have, have his star rise. We talked last week about John Morant. From the time that we're recording, this most recent thing happened was Luka. Let's start with Dallas Clippers. Um, the fact that none of these teams have won a game on their home court is absolutely hilarious, a la the 1990s Houston Rockets. Um, but... Benny, what do you make of Luka Doncic's? You know, last year he he made a statement against the Clippers, but this year he's taken his narrative to a whole different level. Yeah, I mean, I think we'd all be lying if we said we'd ever seen a 22-year-old do anything like this. Mm. Um, I mean, the the sad thing about this series is I could easily see the Clippers still taking this series. Not easily, but so much is obviously just resting on the backs of Luka I feel like if he doesn't have one of these otherworldly games to finish this off, then they're still in the race. But as far as your question goes and the immediacy of Luca, I don't think anyone thought it was going to happen this quick. And uh, he is here and he is some bizarre version of what? Like uh, LeBron James? Like, I, you know, yeah. I, I don't even know what to compare his game to at this point. It's like, it's like LeBron with a step back three and it just a little less size. I'm not really sure, but it's pretty remarkable. And I'm, I'm here for it, man. I just don't know what to make of him, you know, and, and, and this shows the level of insane. I know we've talked a bunch about the, the, like what needs to quote unquote be wrong with you and had to become great, especially <laughs> in sports last night after the game scores 42 points at absolute bucket out, out there for them. And he's like, I played bad because down the yeah. stretch, you know, they let the Clippers come back in into it. And Kawhi had a chance to tie it at the end. So I just think what Luca's doing is amazing. But it, it's kind of like when you're like a, a, a young creative and you kind of need to just plow ahead, keep your head down. You can't be, be too high or too low. I think yeah. that's what he's he's doing to 
himself. He'll look back in the offseason and be like, this was pretty cool. But right now, they have a chance to close out a team that a lot of people thought was going to go to the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, and he's smart. He credited the win to Dorian Finney-Smith. Yeah, which, I mean, and You know what? Amazing. When you're Luka Doncic, yeah. like, that's what you should do. He knows what he can do. And if you're a good leader, you got to boost up the people around you as you're going. So maybe he's a smart kid, too, you know? Ty Lu finally put Kawhi on Luka a little bit more last night, but it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, they have three guys on the team in Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Nick Batum, who have been all defensive teams, and Luka's just like, oh, this old thing? So absolutely think, unbelievable, yeah. all the praise. You got to give Carlisle a little credit, too, because he did change the game plan, started uh, started game five with Boban, mm. you know, and, and Chris Stapps as kind of like a twin towers set up down there, which did actually free up a lot of different stuff. Gave Dwight Powell a lot more run, and he had a couple nice putbacks and really sort of uh, – expose the Clippers lack of interior presence past Zubach. So I think, um, I think you gotta love Carlisle a little credit for that last win too. Yeah, obviously. So by the time we talk next, uh, let's, let's throw out a, a little prediction. Do you think that, uh, Luca and the Mavs will be on to the next round? And I think they face Utah, right? Yeah, I think they could take one of the next two. Mm. It's possible. I don't like the Clippers' chances of having to win back-to-back games, especially if one of those is on the road. But, hey. Let's see what playoff P's got for us. This is a litmus test for Ty Lue as a head coach. And this is, I mean, this is fascinating, too, because if Luka bumps them from the playoffs, what the heck happens to this Clippers team? That's Mm. another whole other podcast. But that thing could uh, blow up fantastically. And, you know, I know uh, we're not going to talk about the Knicks because they've officially been eliminated, thank God. But um, I think, you know, one of those two stars may find their way to the Garden. Who knows? I mean, listen, they said that they found their home. They wanted to chill in L.A. I'll take their word for it for now. But let's just say it'll get interesting, you know? (laughs) All right. The next team we're going to hit on is the underrated. I'm just going to say it. They're underrated Utah Jazz. They finish off their series with Memphis. You know, they did exactly what they were supposed to do in the first round, um, overmatched Memphis completely. And, Benny, based off what you've seen in the first round from Utah, do you think they have what it it takes to get to the Western Conference Finals and maybe even further? Yeah, I do, but it all is kind of relative to the fact that Anthony Davis is not healthy. Yeah. And I think it's creating, uh, you know, as we may discuss a couple times in this segment, I think it's creating an open door right now. Um, if you have Embiid with a meniscus tear and you have AD uh, struggling with the way he is and not at full health and the Lakers actually get knocked out, then um, I don't know. It's anyone's, and and Utah could be the uh, could be the favorite after that. So, um, yeah, sure, I think they have a chance. It's funny that you brought up the Lakers because we were just about to go that way next. Uh, we're recording this before their game against the Suns on Thursday. Still un- unclear whether AD is going to play on Thursday night. I would imagine that they would try to roll him out there, but. How much in this series do you have to, I mean, you've clearly got to credit the injury a a little bit, but you've also got to give the Suns a ton of of credit for uh, taking advantage of the opportunity at hand. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, I think I, I heard even, uh, I don't want to like steal his take, but you know, Bill Simmons was talking about how it seemed pretty obvious that LeBron went out there and kind of just like tested that game out. Mm. And the fact that somewhere around the second quarter, early third quarter, when he saw his team didn't have it, Schroeder was dead to rights that game. I think LeBron just stepped back. He's like, I'm not going to kill myself right now for a game I can't win. Let's leave it to game six. It's typical LeBron style, adding to his uh, his narrative of a, you know, some sort of insane game hmm. seven to get past. So I wouldn't put it past him, and, and the series is certainly not over. We'll see what happens tonight. See, I don't like that at all from LeBron. I get it, you know, spare me the bigger than basketball and all of that stuff, but two things about him during this series have bothered me. One, going to the press and being like, my shoulders are big enough, they can handle the low, blah, blah. Like, cut the crap, dude. Like, it's almost like he's trying to play the martyr. Like, no one's gonna feel bad for you, dude. You're LeBron James. Like, get out there, do what you need to do. I get it, your ankle's been has been in in rough shape you you're not as explosive but you still look pretty good do what you can and i get you're trying to alter the narrative right because that's what you do that's how you've like shaped your entire career but to do that and then to leave the bench in the last game five minutes before it's like sit there support your teammates like you're an example of the kids yeah i yeah i couldn't disagree more what? I think I think LeBron's like 57 years old. <laughs> he he has like X amount of minutes that he can just go out and be like the kind of LeBron he needs to be to carry this team on his back. And if you're in the middle of game five and you just know this team doesn't have it and you're getting AD back and you still actually have a chance to win this series, it's smart. It's a long game. I don't know what happened with the bench. I yeah. try to – he doesn't have like a – you know, some consistent track record of doing that. But he does, though. And That's I like, the I like to give people the benefit of the <laughs> no. doubt and the idea that something else is going on, that his team's not going to be mad at him. Like, it's just some fucking thing that we make a big deal of. Well, of course his team's not going to be mad at him because he's LeBron James, but he has a history of... Maybe he's making a point. I'm <laughs> like, you want Dennis Schroeder, be better than fucking 0 for 9 from the field if you want to win true. this playoffs, you know? So, like, so you think... He's like, I can't even watch this shit. I'm not watching the Taylor Horton Tucker minutes tonight. <laughs> Let's get out of here. So you think Papa LeBron, Dad LeBron came in and yeah. was like, he's like, you know, I'm not yeah. going to fucking deal with this. You guys aren't worth my yeah. time. Is that what he was saying to the Lakers? Yeah. He's going to bed without dinner. <laughs> it's gonna be very fascinating i just have a feeling by the time we we record next week that we're still gonna be talking about lebron and the lakers because um for as unproven as the rest of the lakers are the chris paul and the phoenix suns are just as unproven so it's gonna be interesting to see what happens between now and next week oh yeah and then you know there's some business in the eastern conference to deal with benny there's no hard feelings here. This is a nice, safe space to talk about basketball, the love of it, to to admire greatness. We're not here to be fans. We're here to admire greatness and to talk about it. So it's true. Well, we have a date. Bucks Nets gets uh gets tipped off this weekend in Brooklyn. Uh, we did the the long matchup preview last week, but we're finally here. Um, was very glad that that segment aged very well. 
early thoughts, you know, it looks like your nets are rounding into form. I like where my bucks are at. So ahead of game one, how are you feeling about this series? Terrified. Um, I think the bucks look great. I think they're a better team than they were last year. I think they're more resolved and uh, more functional. The loss of Dante is kind of coupled with the loss of Jeff Green for the Nets, sort of serve a not the same position, but a similar purpose. So I think it's going to be an absolute, like, I, I can't predict anything but seven games and who the fuck knows these games should be insane. Uh, I don't think the Nets have a lot of answers on defense for the Bucks. I don't think anyone in the league has an answer on defense for the Nets when that's clicking. Um, so I, I do have the only thing I can predict is the idea that I think the Nets get smoked in one of the first couple games. I think that's going to happen. We're going to have one of these lesson games, you know? Um, but I don't have a prediction on the series right now. I'm a wash. I'm not being that bold yet. Are you being that bold? You picking the bucks already? No, no, no. If if if, if anything, you know me, and I've stayed consistent with it the whole year. Uh, if anything, I would pick the Nets right now. You're just not gonna get twenty plus every night from Bryn Forbes. It's just not gonna happen. He's looked yeah. good, but he's not Joe Harris. For as confident as I want to be, you know, it's just it's it's a three headed monster, unlike anything the NBA has ever seen. And when it's clicking, we're going to have either game one. Honestly, it's probably going to be game one. Each of the stars is going to have 30 points, and it's like there's nothing you can do about it. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I, you know, that I did notice, and I think it's a good indication for the Bucks, is somewhere in like game five of that, of that uh, Miami series, and Bobby Portis came to Giannis's aid. Yeah. He's lying on the ground and he takes a step over him and Portis like, I think there's something different about this Bucks team this year. It's kind of like this family style thing going on. I like uh, Tucker and Portis there on the bench. So, so basically I'm not picking the Bucks, but I do think they're in a better position to compete than any of the previous years. Um, but as you said, like uh, these Nets are firing on all cylinders then you know they're they're the best team in basketball yeah and no one's gonna beat them so we'll see man it's gonna be fucking fun that's all i know i can't wait for it i think if the nets can i mean excuse me if the bucks can limit you know your joe harris's your blake griffins and if the if it all has to go through the big three that's a hundred points i think if the bucks have to score you know, in like the 110, 120 range, I can see this team doing that. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, good luck. Good luck keeping the Nets <laughs> at the 110, 120. And then just rounding out the Eastern Conference, uh, Philadelphia advanced past the Washington Wizards. Joel Embiid continues to be a question mark. Uh, the Sixers really going to go as far as he does this year. But Really and truly, you know, I think that this entire Eastern Conference comes down to this Bucks Nets series. Oh, and then we got to talk about one more series that's just been banana town, absolutely out of control. This Denver Portland series, Damian Lillard has been one of the greatest bright spots in this league for the past 10 years. 
And time after time, he comes up with the miraculous bucket to save Portland's ass. Like, it's incredible what he's been able to do. But it feels different this time. It feels like this is, you know, we talked about a couple weeks ago how this is do or die for Terry Stotts and crew. And if they don't win this series, I'm pretty sure Dame is, is out of there. He can leave knowing he's done the best that he could possibly do in Portland. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure if he's out of there. I'm not ready to say that, but I do think it's definitely time. It's like shake-up time. Yeah. I could see him going to the office and being like, all right, it's time. It's time to get a new coach in here, show a different direction, do something to keep me here. I don't think he walks that quick, but who knows these days, you know? Yeah. He might, uh, he might rent a mansion in the Hamptons <laughs> and let everybody court him and see, you know? If they're going to move on from any star, I think – Boy, that I love CJ McCollum. I think he's a great person. I think he's a great basketball player. But him stepping on the line is is the Damian Lillard era in Portland tied up in a nutshell in one singular play. It's yeah. Dame having a good, not great supporting cast, and then him entirely being undone by not incompetence, but just a lack of awareness. Yeah, I think, you know, I think they suffered from one of those things where, like, you know, McCollum is so close to being a number two. Mm -hmm. So close, but not quite there. Yeah. You know, and when you have an absolute stud and, you know, players like McCollum and players like Nurkic that are very good all-star, borderline all-star players who command a ton of fucking money when you probably would have been better crafting a very specific team around Damian Lillard or actually securing like a second star, real second star. Mm. So it wound up in kind of that middle ground, I think. And that's maybe where they're going to have to chop it up. I mean, sometimes you get lucky and that guy becomes Chris Middleton. Other times they don't make that all-star jump. It's sad to see, but I think that at, at this point, if you're Bor- Portland, you got to do anything to make Dame happy. Yeah. Who, who, who would have thought that Carmelo wasn't the one who would do the trick? <laughs> All right, Benny. Well, one team that has been already eliminated from the playoffs, the Boston Celtics. We've been talking about the enigma that was the Celtics all year. And they were eliminated by the Brooklyn Nets after just an incredible series from Jason Tatum, really cementing what he is in this league is a guy who can go out and get you 50 in a playoff game, especially against that, those Nets teams. That's huge. But the big news came after they were eliminated when uh, longtime president of basketball operations, Danny Ainge, retired from his position. Head coach Brad Stevens moves up to the front office in a move that really needed to happen And so much of what happens in Boston is to kind of keep the media off of their back. I I think that, you know, seeing that you've kind of reached the end of the road ignites, you know, the WEEI crowd more than anything. So what do you make of Ainge retiring, Stevens moving up to the front office, and where do they go in their head coaching search? I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I even predicted on this show not that long ago, I was I was almost questioning for the last couple of years, like, why is Danny Ainge not taking more shit? You know, through these years, like the post uh, drafting Tatum and Brown and those nice moves and swindling the Nets, that was a long time ago now, you know? And since then, you've had Al Horford walk for nothing, 
Gordon Hayward walk for nothing. Kyrie walk for nothing. Rozier walk for nothing. Signing Kemba to a, you know, didn't seem like a bad contract at the time. Kemba was a dependable player, but obviously has bit them in the ass now. And then, you know, some questionable drafts the last few years where it's just like not really hitting on the things they needed to hit. And it was starting to get to that point where I'm looking at this roster and looking at I'm like, it's not Brad Stevens' fault. Like huh. this team can't get through the top class of the East. So um, I'm not surprised by the fact that they needed a shakeup if the, you know, the way it was laid out with its uh, retirement and Stevens is moving up. I mean, you know, without having an open search for a GM, especially in a market like Boston, that's, you know, similar to like the New York Yankees or the Lakers, like you could have had your fill of anybody looking for a job and you go straight in house to Brad Stevens. So all this between ownership and Ainge and Stevens really feels like a backdoor country club, you know, uh, powwow old boy network kind of thing where they sort of all made a tandem decision, like a decision had to be made, but this is the nicest way to do it where everybody can save face a little bit. Um, and, you know, as far as Stevens goes, he's going to jump up to the front office with this, like, totally locked roster where, you know, um, with the exception of having to make a decision about Marcus Smart, which is doubly interesting now since it was his player for so long, um, you know, they don't have a lot of options, but going into next season with a healthy version of the roster they have, maybe adding, like, a mid-level or something along the way. So... I think the roster you see now is essentially going to be the roster that, that plays out through the end of next season, which kind of is very safe for Brad Stevens. He's really not going to have to do much this first year. And who even knows if he's there a year from now? It's like this weird padding and step down. So that's what I think happened internally. Um, as far as like how this looks optically, I'm a little concerned with what Boston did because on one hand between, you know, Kyrie Irving and a number of other notable players recently saying how Boston's a racist sports town and Danny Ainge's, you know, vi you know, video or audio surfacing of him not appreciating athletes speaking out, you know, it all was looking bad for Boston with the optics. So the idea that they needed to change their image would have made sense if they didn't promote like the whitest guy on earth to their GM role instead of searching for a person of color. So at this point, if Boston doesn't hire a fucking blackhead coach, I'm just going to assume they're like posturing to conservatives, you know? Well, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that, but I do think that this was a hundred percent, a legacy play for Danny Ainge. He wins a championship for them uh, as a front office executive. They want to, quote-unquote, do do the right thing like it's the departed by him. So he gets his choice of who he wants to be the successor. But, no, the, the chance to leave under your own terms, I think, was huge for him. Um, he's, he's had some health scares. His doctors didn't even want him going to the bubble, really being around basketball because of the hard stuff that he had. I do think that Brad Stevens has an, an out here. You know, of course, you know, there's always the option to go with the former player. Uh, Chauncey Billups has been gearing up for his opportunity to be a head coach in the NBA. 
But I really think uh, uh, the option that they're going to go is the Becky Hammond option. Because oh, okay. that checks a number of boxes. You know, you it's still, quote unquote, kind of keeping it in like the coaching fraternity and not going with the star. I think, you know, the Celtics are maybe one of the last organizations that would hand the player, would hand the franchise over to a former player especially if that person's not a Celtic. I think that that really matters up there. So a legacy play all around. And I think Brad Stevens, you know, I've, I've heard him talk a, a bit about how the past year of basketball for him has been draining. You know, the, the, the bubble took a lot out of everybody and having to turn around and do it again. I mean, he's played two playoffs in the span of what, six to eight months. So that pressure in Boston and, that's enough to drive anybody crazy. I think he eventually goes back to coaching in a couple years, but I think you know he's also waiting to see what the state of uh, college basketball and basketball on the whole looks like in the next few years. So a lot of moving parts up in Boston, but I think that this was all to try to keep the fan base happy. We'll see. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of moving on and time passing you by, just like the Boston Celtics, Mike Krzyzewski, Duke basketball head coach, has announced that he is retiring after the upcoming basketball season. This comes after he has publicly dissed the the way college basketball is moving, where the transfer portal is more and more active, uh, where guys can come and go from schools as they please, the one-and-done culture, and really the entire direction that basketball is going. So... Benny, a lot to unpack here with Coach K, but let's start here. Uh, what's Coach K's legacy? Is it his work at Duke or is it the USA basketball stuff? I mean, I think it's more at Duke. I mean, you know, the USA basketball is impressive. And the way that it attached Coach K to the pro game, um, you know, you didn't really see those relationships with non-Duke players. So seeing him... Uh, you know, go toe to toe with some of the biggest stars of, you know, ever in the NBA was, was a lot of fun, but to me, you know, obviously five national titles, 12 final fours, like that's such an impressive, uh, college career. But to me, the biggest legacy is producing 28 NBA lottery picks and 41 first round draft picks. Like, I think there's nobody to me that represents just this, like, idea of like okay you go there you're a superstar high school player you go to duke and then you're going to be a superstar in the nba like he had this process totally worked out before anyone did and it was always like the safest place the the reason it wasn't safe was maybe because somebody else just as great as you is also going there and you might not as get get as many minutes but i think that's his most impressive thing through his career has been this kind of like being this attache for uh, budding great players and helping them become actual great players, you know? And I'll also, I think that him embracing, I think a big part of his legacy is going to be him embracing the one and done. For as much as he hates the current system that is in place, the moment you start embracing these guys only being on campus for six months and having them join the quote unquote brotherhood, like they call it, it's over. Like the moment, like hmm. like that, all of the big time programs started embracing these kids only coming there. Like the writing was on the wall for the f- future, what college basketball would be. 
places never take steps back like that. So, oh, the moment you start letting kids come for a couple months, then you're going to have to pay. It's like the fact that nobody saw this on the wall is pretty crazy to me. So for as much as he hates the system, he's also a big part of the problem. If it's even a problem, I don't view it as a problem. I think it's good to stay current with the times and, and the way that things should be. The one mark on his resume is the fact that uh, he has not been able to produce a coach in waiting, so to speak. A lot of his former assistants have gone on to take head coaching jobs elsewhere, have not been very successful. So we'll see what a head coach in waiting, John Shire, can do with this. But that's a guy that's been there for a very long time. But overall, you know, Coach K is the gateway between the old college basketball and the modern college basketball, between um, the John Woodens and the Bobby Knights and John Calpari. So I, I think, you know, he represents the golden age of college basketball, the age where all these programs made so much money. And he elevated Duke from um, a liberal arts school in North Carolina into an Ivy League. Basketball had everything to do with it. It's true. All right. You ready for the hottest of takes? Let's do it. So I found two quotes in regards to Mike Krzyzewski. See if you will allude to the same thing I alluded to by these quotes. Okay. The first is from Roy Williams. It says, the only thing wrong with Mike Krzyzewski is he doesn't play golf. Ha 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 ha. He's a great family man. He's going to enjoy his family a great deal. He'll still be important in college athletics he'll still be important to college basketball. Okay, that's Roy Williams. Okay. Next, Quinn Snyder. You know, <laughs> one of his uh one of his youngsters as well. He says, "Obviously, it will be different not seeing him on the sideline, but I think you'll see him and you'll feel him in many of the same ways, just not as visibly." What do you think these two are saying? Oh, so he's going to be the next GM of the Charlotte Hornets? I mean, I think past that because they're specifically saying college basketball. I think Mike Krzyzewski may behind the scenes be grooming the emperor position of NCAA basketball, and he will be in the newly created administrative role of overseeing the new NCAA. Boom. Mm. Right here. This is what they're saying. And this is Roy Williams and Quinn Snyder, people he probably got on the horn with, you know? What do you guys think? So here we go. I'm going to take that one step further. I I hope he wears a cloak. I texted you this a couple weeks ago. I think Mike Krzyzewski is going to be the czar that brings together the G League and the NCAA into some sort of of professional collegiate tied in development because it keeps the NCAA's money right and they're very much worried about that going yeah. forward. So I think between his USA basketball and it may be under the USA basketball umbrella where we bring together college basketball, the G League into a professional setting where guys can learn how to be men but also learn how to play mm-hmm. basketball at the professional level. Learn how to be men. <laughs> That was another name of this podcast. <laughs> Learn how to be men. Yeah. Learn how to be a man. <laughs> dot com. Take it from me. <laughs> a real life man. All right. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tune up podcast at gmail.com. Two P's in there. If you, if you want to follow the big man, he's at Benny Horowitz. One, number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. 
almost forgot coming back for more if you want to follow us find all of our content at the tune-up hq on twitter instagram tiktok we out here we are everywhere you want to be hey and the tune-up on youtube come on subscribe get stuff that you did not hear on this podcast we got a lot of videos great stuff up there uh if you want to follow me i'm at danny underscore gallagher uh i've been t- tweeting a lot from the serious xm nba account so if you want videos highlights and shit that's always a good way to go benny you got anything else everybody love everybody let's go nets <laughs> you've been listening to the tune-up <laughs>